and welcome to the Health Advocate podcast. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I'm the director for the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. It's been a devastating start to 2020 with fires across Australia claiming land, home and lives. This is the second podcast in our two-part series exploring the damaging effects of the bushfires upon the health of Australians. Joining us now is Dr. Sebastian Rosenberg, Head of the Mental Health Policy Unit, Centre for Mental Health Research at the Australian National University. Sebastian, thanks for joining us during such an overwhelming time for Australia. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Lovely to be here. Sebastian, the mental health impacts of traumatic events like the bushfire crisis can be huge and long-lasting. For people on the front lines, fighting fires or fleeing their homes, the danger is real and visceral. But for those further removed geographically from the fires, breathing smoky air and reading harrowing media reports can be extremely distressing and triggering. Mm. Can you tell us what some of the more immediate signs are that people are struggling to deal with the aftermath of the fires, in particular people who might be suffering from some post-traumatic stress or anxiety? Right, well, look, thanks again for asking me. First of all, I guess I wouldn't mind just quickly relating what happened to me this summer because maybe I'm a bit of a microcosm, maybe I'm a poor example, I'm not sure. But I think what I want to talk about later on perhaps is relates to some of my own personal experience. We have a little place down at the south coast. We were going to go down there just before Christmas and when we did go down there, it had burned. So we then decided we would go to Threadbow and we went up to Threadbow. We stayed for a couple of days and the air was clear, unlike in Canberra. And then we evacuated a day before the National Park closed because the smoke was billowing down the the Threadbow Valley from fires up there. So that was a worry. So we came back to Canberra. And there was a great deal of smoke in the air and it was difficult to breathe and so on. Sebastian went on to explain that we must be prepared to support those whose lives have been turned upside down from the impact of these natural disasters. Yeah, the mental health system is poorly equipped to meet the needs of people with known mental illnesses. So over time, uh, so we're talking about the first National Mental Health Plan being in 1992, when uh, mental health got about 7% of the health budget. It's now 2020 and it gets about 7.5% of the health budget. So it hasn't really changed at all. And if you think about mental health, you think about all the things which have happened and all the different plans, five different plans, two policies, a roadmap, a COAG plan, a commission review. Now we've got the Productivity Commission plus a Royal Commission. An endless cycle of policy and planning. Our system is not really working well. And that's for people who are currently in it. The effect of these bushfires, again, as I say, not, and not as a clinician, I can't say for sure what will have happened, but you're going to find a lot of people who will have had experiences that will have potentially aroused feelings of concern, as well as physical manifestations, of course, of having to deal with bushfire smoke and other things. They may well be feeling not as secure as they were before because things are changing. Things that they may have taken for granted, like a summer break, is now no longer to be taken for granted. My kids are inside most of the summer. Yeah, I see. I, I mean, my children are now too old to, to do that. <laughs> They're adults more or less themselves. But, you know, for people who were... I was just... I saw something today about the coronavirus, for example, and there was a, a woman who had three children, and she said this has been very difficult, but at least the children have got each other. She came across a mother who only had one child, and it was terrible to try to be in isolation for 14 days. Well, in effect, in Canberra, it feels as though we've been in isolation in some way because we haven't been able to go out and experience the environment. 
and in fact even worse than that, the environment in fact, which seems to have turned on us. And uh, of course it's not really like that. We probably have done quite a lot to elicit that. But the bottom line is that we've all been cooped up inside and that has had an impact, and not just in Canberra but more broadly, including in Australia's really big cities like Sydney and Melbourne, which have been blanketed with smoke and so on. So I think that the impact of these bushfires is going to be very considerable and our mental health system is already at a straining point and so the idea that there will be new groups of people who will need some assistance even if potentially it's short-term assistance is going to be difficult to organize and respond to. Mm. What do you think the government has done well to support mental health of individuals and communities impacted by the fires and in the same token what do you think they need to do better? Right I think this is a really good question I think this gets the nub of, of what I want to talk about. So I think sending people out for crisis care and so on, uh, teams of psychologists and whatever else being dropped into communities is probably not a bad thing. In the short term, there may well be people who need to talk about things and who will be suffering, and indeed things far greater than I suffer, they will have lost houses and family members or whatever else, and they will need counselling of a professional and clinical kind. And so I think the provision of those supports, the removal of a 10 limit cap on Medicare services and some subsidy for that is all very welcome. But I think more broadly, those things seem to me to be very time limited. And of course, those professionals, those clinicians that support will leave. They have left. We know that the vast majority of health professionals choose to work in urban environments. And they do that because it's often an easier place to raise a family. Frankly speaking, they can make more money. And there are particular challenges which are associated with living in non-urban environments. Now, the fires have been so widespread that it's not even really possible now to talk about urban and rural. I mean, just before we started, for listeners out there, Rebecca showed me a picture of what she can see of a night time, which is the Brindabella Ranges behind her house on fire, aglow. And it's very frightening. So this is not a rural, this is an urban area. But I guess my point really in, the, in this respect is just to say that going back to things which we have investigated in the past, when I worked in what was then called Mental Health Care Australia, Mental Health Council of Australia, I should say, we prepared a paper called Weaving the Net, because what we did was we did Not for Service in 2005-06, which showed that the mental health system was in crisis, just like all of the other reports have shown. We then said, well, if the mental health system is in crisis, particularly in non-urban areas, how are these rural and regional areas responding if they don't have access to health professionals, if they don't have access to hospitals, if they don't have access to even to a GP in some cases? What are they doing to try to create an environment that is mentally healthy, where they look actually look after one another? So this document was called Weaving the Net. And it was really about saying, you know, this is about building communities that look out for one another. And lots of communities do that now. It's often not the health professionals who are involved in that. It's often the local copper or the local teacher or whoever it might be who actually plays a role in bringing together and holding together a network of people to look out for one another. And I think that in the broader sense, in the longer term sense, our capacity to respond to the challenges of climate change and seasons like we've just had or are having is going to depend a lot on the strength of communities and how well we link together, 
Now, the health system, I think, can play a really important role in that, but I would be very surprised, particularly in these non-urban areas, if it's in any position to lead. And so if it's not leading, if it can't lead because it's absent, it's not there, it's under stress already, who, who can do that? And what do those people need in order to create and help contribute to stronger, adaptable, resilient communities? And that, I think, is the fundamental question, which has got all sorts of benefits. And you can you start looking at things like the Aqualong Commit Program from Curtin University in Western Australia, which is all about stuff you can do to promote good mental health. And it's not a health intervention. It's a social intervention. It's a community development intervention. These are about opportunities to not feel so isolated, opportunities to be together, to walk, to garden, to run, to jump, to do whatever. And it's that kind of interaction which decreases isolation, increases connectivity, increases mental health. So I think that's the, the main challenge. Sebastian, you touched on the fact that the health workforce or health services, they may not have the capacity yeah. to respond. <clears throat> that's right. What do you think will be required to help best inform future disaster planning for the health workforce? Well, that's a really good question. I, I think that we need a plan. That's the first thing. <laughs> I mean, I was aware that, for example, Centrelink has previously been lauded for its response to disasters. It sends trucks of people in. And part of what they do is a very sophisticated um, clinical intervention called hang around. They hang around. They don't rush off. They don't also rush in and you know, seek to deal with people's you know, uh, longer term issues immediately. They hang around, they linger. And the things that people need, the really important things that people need, emerge. But they're still there to respond. My point is really just to say that we do have some history in designing effective responses to disasters. I think we need, in the face of what's likely to be more regular, frequent disasters, we'll need that to be better understood, to be codified, to be planned for. The impression one gets this summer is that, quite naturally perhaps, people were overcome by the scale of the issue. I think we need to be really mindful of that scale in the future. It is possible for Centrelink to respond to a disaster in a spot. We didn't have a spot. We had spots, lots of spots. When I was a kid, I used to look at the map of Australia and you'd see this little narrow green ribbon of land around our southeast coast and it heads from sort of northern Queensland down into to northern New South Wales and around into Victoria and just heads out into South Australia kind of thing. And this is our, our forests and our fertile land and it is burning. A lot of it has burnt and as you look at the map, and we, Fires Near Me is our most popular app now. You know, we spend a lot of time along with the air quality monitoring in, in the ACT. But the Fires Near Me will show you that it is those green spots that is burning. The western parts of New South Wales, which are not green, have not burned. There's nothing to burn. But that ribbon is all under pressure. So my point is just to say that we need to change our footing to move from the response from isolated or place-specific disasters to be thinking about things on a broader scale because that's likely to be our future. As I say, it's not just about the scale. You asked me particularly about the health workforce. Yeah. 
part of that planning is going to need to be broad because it's going to need to be people who can respond to the longer community development needs of different communities. So it's not just a health response. So again, things like Centrelink are quite a good example because you do start talking about the factors which impact on the social determinants of health. So you're saying we don't really need to continue to work in silos. We need to be working across jurisdictions, across agencies, across departments. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I think Australia has had a lot of experience, successful experience, in responding to disasters in that way, but not at this scale and not over this duration. And so looking to the health profession for solutions is reasonable, but it will only ever be part of that. So I think one of the issues I want to talk about, I would just mention briefly, is that uh, a key element in the mental health workforce that is largely absent is the role of peers. So we know that bushfires exacerbate conditions for people with existing mental illnesses. And we know that, as you say, it is also likely that new clients, new people needing assistance will emerge because of heat and bushfire and the impact of disaster over time. I don't think it's possible to breed enough health professionals to respond to the scale of the problems that we face and the need for long-term engagement with communities. And so, again, I would say that other countries have invested very heavily in peer support as a structured way, part of a mental health workforce, of broadening capacity, and Australia has patently failed to do that. The peers that do work often associated with acute wards in local health districts, and this is a you know a partial at best execution of a role. And I think the, the kind of community development, long-term engagement, relationship building that I'm talking about fits perfectly with a broader role for peers. So I think we do need the health workforce, but I think we need to be imaginative about who that is. You've actually answered all the questions. Right. But I'm going to ask you another question. Surely. That's all right. Okay. So the ANU has been heavily impacted by the smoke. Oh, I should have mentioned that too, yeah. The hailstorm and also the threat of the coronavirus. Mm. You have a large international Mm. student population. Mm. In fact, the building we're sitting in right now Mm. has been heavily damaged by the hail. So I was here when the storm hit and it was frightening. So the skylights both blew in on either side of our common room. We actually were all at the window because people rush to the window when it's hail. They go, oh, look, it's hail. But then we realised that the hail was big and then a window blew out and almost hit one of my colleagues. And we all backed out towards the door jams and towards the centre of the building. And water and hail was coming into the building directly. More windows broke. It was scary and ferocious. And then after that, there was just this parade of sad academics and administrative staff filing out to the car park and then coming back with bad news. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, I was just wanted to ask you, how, how are people coping? How are students coping? How are you coping? Well, it's hard to say about students because the academic year hasn't started yet, so we don't have lots of students sort of around So they yet. missed some of the impact of what's been going on over the summer, but surely with the threat of the coronavirus. Yeah. And not potentially being able to come back to the community. Absolutely. No, no, it's a really significant matter and it it is impacting a great deal. There are several offices in my building that still have windows boarded up 
our skylights are yet to be repaired. So it's, it's a different environment physically. The amount of light that comes in is different. I think there's been a, it certainly put back people's work as well. So you will have seen that the poor researchers in the ANU glass houses that were shattered. You know, people lost their PhD work in that storm event. Very significant. Very significant. So nothing as significant in that sense happened here, but the same kind of idea. We've been set back physically and mentally and academically by the disaster. And I have to say, I guess, I can't help but feel maybe I'm just being chauvinistic here but other disasters in Australia get names like ash this or black that now Canberra had 500 houses burn in an urban environment and three or four people died in 2003 and I don't think that's reached the public consciousness I agree with you and I would say to you that this event in Canberra is of some similar proportion now that may be the fact that I'm reflecting my own Ask me how I am, I guess I'm feeling still pretty up in the air and a bit, you know, discombobulated because my house is still under tarpaulin. I'm still in deep negotiations with offshore-based insurance web chat lines and so on. So it's not so good. But I think it's been a, yeah, it's been a, a pretty terrible start to the year. It has indeed, but I, I like to think that Canberra is quite a resilient community and, and we'll pull together through this. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, the capacity to come to work at the ANU and be in such a stimulating environment and work with great colleagues and things is, is a big plus. Sebastian, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Health Advocate podcast. If you missed part one of this podcast series... We sat down with Professor Satiris Vadalakis to discuss the impacts that bushfire smoke is having on our health. You can listen to all our podcasts by visiting SoundCloud or typing the Health Advocate into your podcast app. Keep up to date with the AHA by following us on Twitter at OzHealthCare or by visiting our website.